Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 294 for October 17th, 2022. And we've got a really, really important interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Doug Levin. He's representing a group called K-12-6. That is kindergarten through 12 as the K-12 part of that. And we're going to be talking today about security and privacy for kids, for students in particular, and schools. And I don't think this really gets enough attention. We There's so much going on in the world of security and privacy. I talk about all sorts of subjects, but you know, we really got to worry about the kids. And especially after COVID and the pandemic, and there's been so many surveillance technologies uh, you know, because kids were taking tests and doing schoolwork from home. They didn't really have a whole lot of choice in the matter. I mean, you know, the school systems decided what they were going to use, and they said, this is what you're going to be doing. And if you want to take a test, then you have to install this really intrusive software that will, you know, it will make you lift your laptop up and turn your camera on and give us a 360 view of your room before the test so we make sure that you're not cheating somehow. Uh, among other things, we'll pay attention to your facial expressions and we'll try to catch you cheating and we'll, fly, you know, we we'll have automatic systems that will catch you doing this and, and raise a red flag for the proctor, a human proctor to come and take a look and perhaps fail you for the test because it looks like you were kind of looking off to the side a lot. Like maybe you were looking down at your phone or you were trying to reference something in a book. It's, it's just got ridiculous. And like everybody else, schools have... IT departments that are understaffed, they don't have they don't have the right knowledge, they don't have the right people, they don't have the right tools, they don't have the right skills. And it's not their fault. I mean, budgets are really short and there's only so much you can do. Yeah, it, it, it's a really, really thorny issue. And we're going to get into all of that today with Doug and that and much more. It's a really important conversation. If you are, you know, if you are a K through 12 school teacher or administrator or maybe on the school board, or know somebody who is, this is an interview you definitely do not want to miss. And also students and parents. Uh, I really feel bad, honestly, for the students the most in this situation, like I said, because they just don't have a lot of rights. They're minors. They don't have a lot of say in this matter, and they probably don't have the life experience and the maturity to know that they should, especially when you're talking, you know, elementary or middle school kids. But luckily, we've got Doug to talk us all through these issues and give us some really, really great advice. He also has a ton of great resources, not only his own organization, of course, but many, many others. He sent me a ton of great links. I put them all in the show notes. So if this is an area that concerns you personally, you've got a lot of great things to lean on. Before we get into the interview, I'll just note that since we had this interview, there's been a massive ransomware attack in, on the Los Angeles School District. But over the last two years, there's been just horror stories about privacy invasions and, and other situations where all this data that's being collected now by students has gotten loose and it's, you know, hackers have gotten a hold of it and distributed it. It's, it's a real, real mess. So real quick, before we get in, uh, Doug throws out a few terms uh, kind of offhand that I just want to make sure that you're you know, kind of familiar with before we get to the interview. One is pen testing. We've talked about that before. It's penetration testing. This is when, you know, basically white hat hackers try to find the vulnerabilities in your products and services before the bad guys do. It's a, basically it's try to hack me so that we can find these problems and get, and get them fixed. 
you mentioned the term script kitty. A script kitty is kind of a the, the lowest possible level hacker. Uh, because the internet is the internet and you can share anything, once somebody gets real smart and real clever and figures out how to hack into something, that's that information is tend to be shared and then it's automated. And so a lot of these kind of low-level hackers and uh, what we call script kitties get a hold of this technology and it takes almost no knowledge whatsoever to to run these things once someone else did the hard part. He mentioned Shodan. That is actually kind of a search engine for publicly available devices on the internet, devices that may not have proper protections. And, and this the service that the Shodan provides is allowing you to, to search for these things and say, hey, this is, this is not good. You need to fix these things. He also mentions a couple kind of wonky security terms. One is an SOC. That's a security operations center. He also mentions a SIM. Uh, I believe he was referring to S-E-I-M. I don't think I've ever heard that, that acronym pronounced. So I think that's what he was referring to. A security information and event management system. Uh, you don't really need to understand what those are, but that's, that's what he's talking about. All right. I don't want to waste any more time. This is a really important interview. Let's get to our talk with Doug Levin. Doug Levin is co-founder and national director of the K-12 Security Information Exchange, or K-12-6, a national nonprofit dedicated solely to helping schools protect themselves from emerging cybersecurity threats. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks very much for having me, Kerry. Well, this is something that's been near and dear to my heart. I mean, I've got two kids that just kind of, one is still in college and, and one just graduated, but they've been, they were there through COVID. And some of the things that they had to go through during COVID were just atrocious. And so it's, it's something I don't think we call a lot of attention to. Of course, parents out there are probably aware of these things, but I, I don't know if they're aware of some of the rights and maybe some of the ways they might be able to push back. So, and then of course, security is a huge thing and ransomware has been a, they've, a lot of ransomware victims have been school systems. And so we're going to talk about all that today and I'm super looking forward to it, but let's start off. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about this K-12-6 and what is your role there? Yeah, sure. No, uh, happy to do so and thrilled that you're interested in shining a light on this topic. It, it often doesn't get the attention that it deserves. K-12 education sector often is sitting at literally the little kids table in all of the adult conversations, and they don't tend to recognize the fundamental changes that have happened in schools over not just since COVID, but really that have been ongoing for 10, 15 years, like many other sectors of the economy and even government, you know, schools today rely on technology for their operations in ways they never have before. And I think, you know, the rise of COVID and the shift to remote learning really brought that to light. Mm -hmm. But this is a trend that's been going on for some time. So my organization, my organization is a relatively younger organization. We launched in late 2020 with the sole mission of trying to help protect K-12 schools from emerging cybersecurity threats, really building the capacity of K-12 schools to so they can defend themselves against these mm -hmm. threats. We're not providing right, 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 hands-on yeah. keyboard you know, security services for <laughs> yeah. schools. Uh, and we operate as an ISAC, an information sharing and analysis center, which is a type of organization that tends to be sector specific and provides threat intelligence, alerts, guidance, best practices, and coordinates joint action in the face of evolving threats. 
And I think it came, it grew out of the recognition that organizations in the same sector tend to run the same types of technologies and applications, sure, maybe yeah. different brands, but they're right. competing. And the threat actors that they're facing tend to be the same and after the same sorts of things, right? A criminal going after banks is always interested in getting into banks a certain way. Similarly, those who try to exploit schools use similar tactics and techniques, and they repeat them over and over again from school district to school district mm. until it's not successful, and then they try the next you know, trick in their bag. And so there's been a lot of attention in the K-12 space on how to train future cybersecurity workers, right? Mm. Introduce them to computer science, introduce them to the notion of cybersecurity as a career because we need more mm -hmm. oh, yeah. expertise and workers, right? But there's been very, very little attention to helping K-12 organizations as institutions and enterprises protect themselves from cybersecurity risk. And if you think about it today, most schools, certainly in a post-COVID environment, or are we post-COVID? I don't know. Anyway, post-remote <laughs> post learning environment, yeah, right. you know, students all have their own devices provided by the school. Absolutely every teacher does. They may be using literally hundreds of applications in the classroom mm. for different subjects and different grade levels. But you've got point of sale in the cafeteria. All of the physical security systems are IP-enabled you know, HVAC systems. In many communities, K-12 schools are the largest employer, right? Mm. So all of the ERP employee management systems are digital. Uh, they run transportation services. Those may be routed electronically via GPS, right? So schools really have undergone a digital transformation. Brings a lot of benefits, but it introduces a tremendous amount of risk that has never been frankly, appropriately uh, managed in the K-12 sector just because it's so new, number mm -hmm. one. And number two, there's no law or authority telling school leaders, particularly non-IT school leaders, that this is important and you have to pay attention to it. There's a tremendous amount of attention, for instance, on physical security issues in schools, because mm -hmm. unfortunately of things yeah. like school yeah. shootings. We have emergency plans for things like natural disasters and extreme weather events. We practice them. We mm. deal with it all the time. But the notion that a hacker could encrypt all your files, take down your communications, lock you out of your accounting system, and you know, like you you can't, you know, talk to parents, you don't know where the buses are, you can't lock the door. Like that and so you literally have to send kids home. That's not anything most school leaders have ever even imagined was possible. And like you suggest, this isn't some fantasy scenario. This is happening now. This is, I mean, there are examples of this that are happening in real time. Well, let's talk about that. So what are the most, let's focus on the people second, but starting with like the school systems, like uh, computers and infrastructure and things like that. What are the primary threats to those today? Where are they most vulnerable? And do you have any anecdotes to share? Like that might bring those points home. Yeah. So schools face a variety of, of threats. They're very open environments and they face internal threats from folks who are part of the school community. Hmm people that schools have relationships with and then external threats from those you know cyber criminals maybe based likely based overseas so you know in terms of internal threats 
certainly employees make mistakes. They're large organizations. Occasionally employees get disgruntled. There's disagreements. You know, things like that happen. Every school that is serving middle school and high school kids, I promise you they're getting free pen testing every day <laughs> from curious students, right? Yeah. Who who occasionally cross lines. Mm-hmm. In most cases, they're just kids being kids. But uh, I think a lot depends on how we react to that and guide that energy and interest. Increasingly, we're actually hearing about this happening with elementary school students. And this mm. is not just, you know, sort of script kitty stuff. I mean, some of this stuff is actually pretty, pretty sophisticated hmm. attacks uh, happening internally carried out by students. But on the outside, you know, well, one last one last you might consider internal threat, and that is vendors and partners of school districts. So school districts contract with lots of organizations. One of the things that's emerged in recent months, more in the public mind, again, not based on the data that I've been collecting for years on this, but in public minds, is the risk associated with working with those vendors. Because it turns out that if a school vendor experiences a cybersecurity incident, that can affect not just one school district, Mm. but all of their customers. It could Mm -hmm. affect thousands of school districts and literally millions of students and teachers. And we have seen a couple of those incidents happen in recent months. And so I think there's a much more sensitivity now to trying to figure out whether school vendors and suppliers of all types, right, are doing a good job in securing their data information and IT assets because that affects school district operations because they've just outsourced it. Right. Now, externally, there are absolutely a group. There's I I put it into two different categories of sort of cyber criminals. There are some that are just doing sort of mass scams. They don't know who they're targeting. They don't care who they're targeting. Right. Using Shodan, sending millions of spam, uh, uh, phishing emails. Right. And some of those definitely get through and affect schools. They're running older systems, Mm. maybe exposed to the internet. People click on things, it happens. But there are a class of criminals that are actually, believe it or not, targeting K-12 schools, meaning they are doing research, they know who their targets are, and they're actually spending some time and effort in crafting their attacks. So they might spoof a school district website to steal and send phishing emails to steal identity credentials from, say, teachers to then log in and change where they're Uh, payroll is being Mm. uh, directed. They do research on when schools are working on particularly large contracts, like school construction contracts. Oh, wow. We'll end up phishing that sort of those email accounts and change the bank account routing information (laughs) for the school vendors. Wow. They'll even fish school vendors and say, hey, congratulations. You just got a big contract from this school district. Fill out this paperwork. We'll send you your money, deliver your gear to this place. And the school district had nothing to do with it, right? This is just someone taking advantage of that trusted relationship. And then, of course, we do have ransomware gangs that knowingly and willingly are targeting school districts and have extorted school districts uh, out of millions of dollars. They have dumped student data on the dark web that has led to identity theft of children as young as first graders, right? Within the same school year, right? So it is uh, sort of the whole range of threats that you might imagine affect every kind of organization actually affects schools too. And I would say I have a frequent conversation with folks in school districts who, who are baffled as to why they would be a target. 
And I think they have two assumptions. One is that we don't have enough money. Like, why would you go after? <laughs> right. I don't have anything of value at a school. And and the, the truth is they don't have enough money to do all the things they want and need to do for kids. But if you look at the operating revenues mm. of school districts, a medium-sized school district, I mean, you're talking about a revenue of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The largest school districts in the nation have annual budgets of billions of dollars a year. Wow. These are not small enterprises, yeah. right? But people don't think of them that way yeah, because right. you know th th there's so much more they need to do. The other thing is thinking about what's valuable about the data that schools hold. What are you going to do with a kid's algebra grades? And and the fact of the matter is you're not going to do anything with the kid's algebra grades. The criminals aren't interested in kids' algebra grades. They're interested in that identity information. And, and as I'm sure you know, identity information of minors is actually more valuable to cyber criminals because it is unmonitored. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, right, the, the, the criminals can start to open accounts, maybe less valuable accounts initially, under using a minor's identity information and then leverage those accounts to open more sensitive accounts right. and then start to serially abuse their credit record for years before anyone finds out. And it may not be until a student, you know, applies for college and goes for that student loan or tries to get their first apartment and they do a credit check and they yeah, find wow. out that their credit has been destroyed because it's been abused for five, 10 years uh, or more. Yes. Yeah, so, oh, so let's talk some more about what what some of the threats are to the individual people, the students uh, and the teachers. Even uh, and we talk, identity theft obviously would be a big one. I don't know when in this country it used to be years ago that you didn't get your social security number much later in life, but now they're assigned pretty much at birth. And you're right, no one looks at those things, you know, because your credit doesn't develop until you're maybe a teenager. If you're, you know, if you start getting maybe a credit card or something, I don't know. It's it's tough, but yeah, you're right. I mean, what, parents won't even look at it, but they've got. Social security number since birth. So yeah. What are the threats to students and teachers uh, in the cybersecurity realm? Schools are increasingly collecting more and more, you know, information about the people in their community, right? So that's teachers and staff. It is students. It's also students' families and their family situations. Mm. And, you know, like most things, there has been a creep in the in the amount and type of information people yeah. are interested in, in serving, right? So it's not unusual for schools to have insights into whether students may have had some interactions with the legal system. If they have health issues mm. that they mm -hmm. may sure. need to take action right. on. If they're coming from a broken home or have other home issues. If you know, they may know something about their immigration status mm. or the immigration status of the family. Right. And schools really have the mission of serving all comers. They're not in the job right. of enforcing immigration laws. But if they have that data collected, mm -hmm. then others always are interested in a use for that. Increasingly, there have been an interest in trying to assess students' sort of social and emotional well-being. And so they're collecting indicators of like emotional health and interests, certainly concerns about bullying online, what kids are or even staff are viewing and doing on their devices, the sites they're visiting, the searches they're making, uh, even monitoring their chats uh, mm. and email logs and monitoring that communication, right? So some of this is under the guise of keeping them safe, you know, for their own good. Mm -hmm. 
And in other cases, it's out of a, you know, a desire to try to, to learn more, get data to justify some new investments to help kids. But I think what we've seen is that once those data are collected, there is always an interest in repurposing it mm-hmm. in other ways. And what we've seen consistently is that those are tending to, you know, create not benefits for, you know, kids, but actually they are disadvantaging kids and and they are creating problems for kids. And it tends to be certain types of kids, mm-hmm. right? Kids who are at risk, uh, right. minorities, English language learners and immigrants. There's a lot going on with LGBTQ mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so, you know, schools try to be a sort of safe space and, and provide services for everyone, but they do get caught up in these larger political dialogues. Uh, you know, frankly, the sort of surveillance that's been put in post, I, I don't even want to name all the school shootings there have been because <laughs> yeah. I can't just point to one. Right. Incredibly invasive in terms of tracking, you know, students' location, uh, what they're doing on their devices, whether those devices in some cases are school issued or personal devices, and often sharing these with third parties that may claim to not to do the right thing with that data. But the fact of the matter is that their practices over time, we've had enough evidence that the practices certainly are not in line with their spoken assertions that they're taking individuals' privacy and security seriously. And and they do get repurposed, they do get resold, and it absolutely does create problems for individuals. So, you know, broadly speaking, you know, there's financial risks when it with identity information and financial information. But if you are experiencing, you know, challenges in your life, whether it's health uh, issues, family circumstances, prior engagement with law enforcement, immigration, or, you know, even, even in, you know, you're in a politicized environment. And so something about your gender identity, right? Uh, if you're concerned about that, the sharing of this information with schools quite likely could become public through a right. breach of, you know, privacy or security. And then that puts you at, you know, potentially tremendous personal risk. Right. So your organization to, uh, to combat these exact things has recently released a series of guidelines for school cybersecurity. So can you walk us through some of the highlights of those, of those recommendations? And when I read it, I seemed to, it seemed like say maybe this is the first of a series, but anyway, are, are there more to come besides this one? Yeah, so this is this is funny. This is a nice sort of parallel, I think, in maybe the philosophy that you've taken in your work and what we try to do in the K-12 sector, right? We were talking, you know, a lot of what you do that I've appreciated is breaking down these sort of complicated and involved privacy and security concepts into sort of actionable advice, what, for normals, for people who are not IT professionals. Right. And... As it turns out, in the school sector, in the K-12 sector, most school districts have very slim IT teams. Right. And compared to the private sector, one individual in K-12 is supporting many, many more users and devices than you might expect in the private sector, number one. Number two, they tend not to actually have anybody on staff who has a cybersecurity background themselves, right? So all of these cybersecurity concepts and ideas and notions and principles are new to them. And in many cases, school IT staff as well may have actually come up through the ranks of teachers, 
and librarians mm. it may not even have come in right. through a traditional it route. sure yeah right so this is new for them and as i mentioned this is a newer issue for schools in general so what we are trying to do with our essential series is take the good advice that has been developed by folks like NIST and the Center for Internet Security and all the other folks who have built cybersecurity risk management frameworks, which are terrific rubrics and ways of conceptualizing how to put a robust cybersecurity program in place. And it's wonderful for folks who work in financial services or serve the federal government, particularly in defense or energy fields, right, where there is a need for, you know, state-of-the-art security but they can be overcooked for <laughs> yeah right for small medium businesses for school districts quite honestly and so what we've done with our essential series is we have tried to create an on-ramp onto those frameworks so i have a colleague in my organization who, who talks about the cybersecurity maturity of school districts on a scale of one to five he says there is zero right so <laughs> That's, that is our audience for this work. And so our Essentials product, our first product was uh, a set of what we would argue are cybersecurity standards for school districts, because such things literally do not exist today. And so if a school district, any school district across the country had to do a small number of things that would demonstrably reduce their risk, what would you have them do? And you have to be able to explain it in a way that maybe non-IT professionals would understand. And so that's what they're about. So it's a set of just a 12 controls. In the NIST parlance, these would all be defensive controls, right? This isn't building the foundations of a program. This is about closing the windows and locking the back right. door, right? Reducing your attack surface. Yeah, absolutely, right? So four categories, right? Just sanitizing that traffic in, you know, uh, coming from the internet to the school district and back out again, variety of you know, sort of four controls sitting in that bucket, safeguarding the devices of end users themselves, often the the avenue for ransomware and, and phishing and other malicious software into school districts, you know, helping to protect their identities through better authentication and password management, right? And then what we would consider sort of maintenance tasks, things like patching, making sure you have a good backups, et cetera, right? So, Really common, nothing in our essentials as a IT professional, if you looked at it, you'd go, oh, that's crazy. I never would have thought about that. Right. There was a bit of a school spin on it. Um, and we've set some fairly detailed standards about what we mean by implementing these sorts of controls. And we have provided alignments to both NIST and CIS so people can scaffold up into that. And then we built a self-assessment, a quick and dirty multiple choice self-assessment so school districts can go on, fill it out, get a prioritized sort of to-do mm -hmm. list. We have developed sort of workshops and trainings, even uh, PowerPoint templates for people to fill out once they've taken the self-assessment so they can then present to their superintendent and say, hey, we took the self-assessment. This is what we learned. This is what we should focus on. Can I have some money or time to do <laughs> yeah. X or Y? We've also recently added to the series and put together a slimmed down incident response runbook. Hmm. In all of our conversations with our members and with IT you know, practitioners in schools all across the country, many of them do not have incident response plans for cyber incidents. Again, 
plenty of plans, very robust plans for physical security and other sorts of disruptions that schools are used to, not for cyber incidents. And school IT leaders have been challenged to get the attention of their CFOs, of their superintendents to sit down and really kind of do tabletops around cyber risks. They just don't get it. And so that stops those folks from building these IR plans, which are really essential. And so what we built, again, was a slimmed down runbook that people can use in the absence of doing a really integrated all hazards uh, incident response plan and to uh, just to walk people through what is most important in a cyber incident. And frankly, the most important thing and the biggest value add to that product is probably a very detailed list of contact information that we want everybody to fill out and then print out right and have with them right right because it does no good if it's digital and you can't get onto your device because it's been encrypted right so because uh, for most school districts their incident response plan is we're going to call for help mm. you know we're going to call mm -hmm. a security vendor we're going to call an msp we're going to call our insurance company we're going to call our lawyer right because they don't have the staff and the capacity to do forensics and and all this stuff nor should they try right right, right. right. so but it's still important to understand that so we are in the process of updating our essential protections, our, our set of controls for this school year right now. Um, I tend to think of our, our annual updates of this that are going to look a little bit like maybe the OWASP updates, if you recall. Mm, yep. that, that's a list that, frankly, doesn't change very much year right. over year. You know, they're like, there's only so many times we can say cross-site scripting is the top. Right. So, right, so I, I don't think ours is going to change a lot. But we may end up, hopefully, we will be ending up sort of raising the bar on what we mean by like patching, that the the standard is that you patch within 90 days of a security, of a, you know, a significant patch. Now it's 30 days. Maybe sometime we'll get to 15 days or, or some automation there, right? But we're right. going to, hopefully, that bar will move up. But the broad categories are unlikely to change yeah. quickly. So that's that's what that series is about, and uh, we definitely like to build more there. It's all built actually with us and with our with our members, people who are practicing in these roles. So this is really pragmatic stuff, which is fantastic. So you've alluded to some of these already, but what are some of the you know primary impediments to improving cybersecurity in schools today I, I assume budget is one maybe personnel is another but where even if they're aware that they need to do these things what is preventing them from doing them yeah so i mean you sort of get down to root causes i mean i think you can put you can point it out lot, lots of lots of places and fingers i actually go back to to the simple fact that this is frankly a new issue for school leaders for uh, folks who are sitting in leadership positions, non-IT positions, superintendents, school board members, folks who work at, at the state level, because ultimately states have the authority over local school districts. So state departments of ed, governors, state legislators don't understand or grasp the range of risks that have been introduced to schools, frankly, by government policies that hmm. have driven schools to adopt more technology, hmm. right? Government has devoted tons of money to get schools connected to the internet, to get devices in the hands of kids, 
Uh, I was involved in efforts that were digitizing testing away from, you know, number two pencils and Scantron sheets to fully online tests, fully online textbooks at online schools. These of all things and efforts that I've been involved in in my career over 30 plus years and working these issues. But we still view cybersecurity risk as something as the job of the IT department, somebody else's job, somebody else's responsibility. And until it is really, uh, until we address this cultural issue, right, that this is an organizational risk that needs to be addressed at the leadership level, I think we're going to continue to to deal with these other problems of not enough money, but but frankly, it's not so much to buy tools. Uh, we talk. I talked to a tremendous number of cybersecurity vendors. Got interesting products. They seem like they would work well for the sorts of use cases they're imagined for, but they require monitoring and tuning and a lot of work maybe to even get them deployed and implemented in the first place. And that's just not going to happen in a K twelve environment. I mean, they, they don't have the bodies and the expertise. They're not yeah. running socks. They don't have SIMs. If they had a SIM. They, I don't know what they would know to do with it because they don't have the time to monitor it. They'd be just chasing their tails, chasing alert after alert after alert. So in some respects, they're like, you know, if I <laughs> don't ask, don't tell, I guess we're okay. Uh, at least I yeah. don't have any liability for knowing that we're not doing stuff. We're not fixing this stuff because we don't know about the problems, which is not, it's not a good yeah, it's not where we want to be, of course, right. but but ultimately, I think I think you know this this is a policy issue, and I think this is a leadership issue. And until if and until leadership and policymakers make this a priority, I think there's precious little that IT leaders can do. I think they're getting burnt out. I think they're put in an almost impossible situation. And as individual users, particularly in a K twelve environment there's actually precious little that you can mm. do. How do school systems, which tend to operate on a county level, best collaborate in order to share you know, best practices and threat intelligence? You mentioned an ISAC. How do we get cooperation? I think back to the movie, um, The Music Man, you know, Robert Preston goes from town to town because they're all isolated, right? So he can go to one school system, get their, rip off their band and take his money, go to the next one and do the same thing because they're probably not talking, right? Yeah. So I used to liken this, in fact, I still liken this to the movie or the book Fight Club. So if you talk to school IT leaders and you raise this issue of cybersecurity, they will like get quiet, kind of look over their shoulder to see if anybody's around. And if there's not, they're like, you, you would not believe what is going on. And then they would start to tell you story after story after story. And what you find is that you go to district to district to district, everyone will act the same way. Mm. But no one had been talking to each other because mm. there was this fear, two, a couple of different fears. One is that there was something that the, in, the IT teams at the individual school districts were doing that suggested that they were not doing a good enough job, right? And if somebody found out, they would just get fired, <laughs> right? And then the second thing that folks didn't understand is you know, that phishing scam that you, your users fell for, like to, I can find 20 other districts that fell for the same scam, exactly the same scam. And because you all didn't talk, everybody fell for it, right? And so an ISAC is, it's actually information sharing and analysis center, right? And so the notion is collective defense. And the notion there is, again, organizations should be able to work together cooperatively 
right? To, to better defend against the threats that are facing all organizations of the same type. I think if you look out across this big, large country, there are maybe something like 15,000 regular school districts. You start counting charter schools, the number goes up way higher. If you throw in regional education agencies, so depending on what part of the country you are, those could be ISDs or ESDs or BOCES or county offices of ed. Some states don't have them. That's another set of organizations, state departments of ed, and then maybe even private and independent schools, hmm. right? We're, we're all basically running the same sorts mm -hmm. of stuff, trying to do the same sorts of things. If every single school district all across America has to figure this out, has to have a cybersecurity expert on staff. I mean, forget it. Forget it. We can't hire enough of these professionals in the private sector. And the private sector pays <laughs> 4x, 5x, 10x more than the public sector right, yeah. on this. So it's not going to it's not going to happen. We can't afford these tools. We can't afford the people. We have to work together to solve these issues at some level of scale. And so uh, whether it's working with a national organization like us, working with some state-based professional organization or under the umbrella of a State Department of Ed, I don't think it really matters. Uh, you know, like I'm kind of agnostic about cybersecurity risk management frameworks. If you're interested in one, by all means, use it. Uh, yeah, I may have opinions about one over the other, but like using something is better than nothing. In too many ways, you're like trying to be perfect, trying to trying to not air your dirty laundry is doing so much harm here uh, that when we just need to do better and understand that this is this is work that is ongoing forever. This is a marathon. This is in some mm. this is a marathon without an ending, right? I mean, we, we're always going to have to be vigilant. Yeah. But it's not a checklist. It's not a sprint. You can't say, oh, I did these things. I put in this antivirus in this firewall. We're safe. We're good. We don't have to pay attention to this anymore. No, that's just not how this works at all. I, I know you know that, but I think in education, too many folks in the leadership at non-IT view it that way. So I think we, we have to work together. That is the only way we're going to make any sort of progress here whatsoever. All right, so I'd like to turn now to privacy. We've talked a lot about security, but I think to me, this is the, the issue that is more, I don't know, uh, disturbing to me. I mean, I think when it comes to security, we're all kind of the same boat. We all want to help each other. We all want to be more secure. There's very few conflicting interests. When it comes to privacy, though, it seems to be very different. And the interests of these third parties in a lot of cases that have come up with these tools that allow kids to work from home and and whatever uh, have not been good for the kids. So let's let's talk about privacy. Um, and, and COVID obviously exacerbated a lot of this with people having to work from home. And because of the way we do testing in the US, you know, it's all memory based. So we can't have these kids cheating. And so they develop these horrible, horrible tools. So it, <laughs> if you would kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of what kind of invasive privacy tools have uh, have come around and because of COVID and just other because we can, unfortunately, in the last few years that we've done. You know, the, the funny story is this is the issue that actually motivated me to get interested in this work. That's understandable. Uh, right. So for, for years and years, I was involved with associations and in other nonprofit roles, you know, frankly, trying to help schools leverage the promise of technology. And I think I became more and more concerned, however, about the unintended 
consequences that we weren't paying attention to. And there is, you know, frankly, a promotional machine and a lot of money behind this constant innovation. It's good, latest and greatest, the next, next thing, et cetera. And I'm like, boy, that's going to be a problem. We can see that coming a million miles away. And what's interesting is that in the K-12 domain, and this may not be different in other domains, once you start talking about privacy, the conversation ends up getting complicated quickly. And it gets complicated because we have a panoply of laws that have been passed, the federal and increasingly at the state level, particularly around student data privacy. And the conversation very quickly gets twisted by lawyers and those who are promoting these technologies as compliance with the law, when in fact, I think it's quite clear that you can be compliant with the law and do awful, awful things. You can you can have a good privacy policy, and it turns out your practices may not resemble your policies whatsoever. And we have seen this happen time and again and again and again. And also, then there's a set of folks who say, I don't care. I have nothing to hide. I'm good with Mark Zuckerberg having all my stuff on Facebook and and I use TikTok and who cares? Like they, they already know everything about me anyway. Nothing's happened to me. And so you have these sort of values-based conversations, almost religious type conversations about what do you believe about the world? And maybe you and I, and maybe this audience is better educated about this. And so we understand also maybe how some of this stuff works behind this magic curtain that it's not so magic. And maybe there are these downsides that other people don't see, but it's very frustrating conversations. And uh, so I actually went the cybersecurity, cybersecurity route and, and sort of went this way in part because it's a much easier conversation. It's less politically fraught. It's less, less right. there's less disagreement about you right. know, whether if a bad guy hacks in and you know and steals your stuff everybody agrees that's bad right but this app putting in schools to keep kids safe when in fact it's abusing their privacy that may lead to negative consequences some point down the road is a much harder right conversation so i think but ethically i think that's where the issues are and i think that's where the concerns are and i do think that we need to have we need to raise these as ethical concerns, not just privacy concerns. Because I mm. think it's this is about what kind of school, what, what kind of environment we want schools to be. Do we want them to resemble environments that are empowering kids uh, and trying to, to create sort of open-minded, problem-solving, community-minded citizens, uh, right, in the future who are well-informed? Or are we going to treat kids, frankly, like prisoners? Yeah. And- monitor them 24 seven, essentially put the equivalent of like monitoring bracelets on their ankles and track their behavior 24 seven because we can, and something bad might happen to them online. And so, you know, right now, as I mentioned, you know, there are school districts that are employing tools that are monitoring students' use of technology on and off campus, uh, on school managed devices and off. So that may be social media communications, email, the websites they're visiting. Um, there have been stories of school districts turning on those webcams mm -hmm. and and you know viewing kids in their uh, home environments. Uh, certainly that was a big challenge with remote learning, mm -hmm. right? Because not every kid could turn on a camera and sometimes turning on that camera was uncomfortable for all sorts of reasons. 
we have things like, you know, vaping detectors and gunshot detectors in schools. Uh, there's this new service called eHall Pass, which will mm-hmm. literally basically monitor your physical location in a school building, you know, to within a couple of meters, you know, 24, you know, seven around uh, the school. Certainly test taking, you mentioned test taking, some of the online proctoring apps are incredibly uh, invasive. They ask you to scan your room. They're installing what would otherwise be determined as sort of malware, you know, (laughs) root level access Mm -hmm. to your device, absolutely monitoring everything that's happening onto it. And I see, you know, people coming to places like Reddit for advice, like, I don't want to install this on my device, you know, can I put it on a VM or this or that? And the the fact of the matter is these tools understand when they're not being deployed, right? And, And like, you don't, this is the, the thing about schools that's so hard. You can't opt out, really. Right. Like, op, you can't opt out. Like, if you're going to be part of schools, you need to take the test to get the credit. You can't say no. And that's what makes it so pernicious and hard. You and I can choose to not be on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. And and some will argue about the ability to be that you need to be on those platforms or not. Sure. And I, I'm I'm sympathetic to that because I do use social media, understanding warts and all, right? But with school devices, you you can't, right? So, you know, in Florida, because of school shootings, they set up a system at the state level that was collecting data from every school in the state to try to identify kids who are at risk of becoming a school shooter, Hmm. right? So as you might imagine, you get a detention one day, you, you know, you, you, you may, you know, maybe there's a question about your gender identity, you change, like you can get flagged for, you do a search online for some, some funny meme of the day. You say you're having a bad day. You just say, "Ah, shoot me. Like this is awful day. Right. Right. All of a sudden you get flagged, you're in this database. You don't, you don't have an, ability to view it. You don't have an ability to, to know who's going to get to it. And of course, the state says, oh, only authorized people are going to get to it. Mm-hmm. And of course, we take privacy and security safely. No one will ever hack it. Oh, please. please. <laughs> yeah. the, the state of Florida had their gun registry database hacked. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, like this is this is hard to do. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we've had kids whose parents have been deported because schools have been sharing information with immigration naturalization services. Um, I think there's absolutely concerns in the reversal of Roe v. Wade around women's and girls' health issues that might get flagged in school districts now. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And you can argue about what's the right role for schools, et cetera, et cetera. But Really, it's it's hard enough for schools to do their main job, which is just to educate kids. Right. But now we're sort of feeding them, providing them mental health services, you know, counseling services. All it's it's just really hard. But the range of data that we're collecting on individuals is really extreme, and it's really and who it's being shared with as right. well, right? And so once it's out there, it's just you know you can't can't get it back. Well, it's, it, it reminds me of like the movie Field of Dreams. You know, build it and they will come. And it's like with data, it's like collect it and they will come for it. <laughs> it's it's just too rich. It's too juicy. It's it's a, actually it's fascinating to see because a lot of the sort of education technology tools and apps uh, they're sort of built up like we're going to build the better algebra course, right? You can just 
take instead of you know going to a physical book and a and an in-person teacher, you can go online and take a class from the best teacher in the world for algebra. And you know what? Now we're going to make it an online course uh, with no teacher. And maybe we're going to gamify it. So you're just going to play an algebra game. And now the algebra game is going to have some AI or ML behind it. So it's going to predict uh, what you know and then give you customized questions based on what it thinks you need to know next, right? And then all of a sudden, what the curriculum you're getting is not the curriculum I'm getting, but nobody knows how the model right. works or why, right? And the data then that's, and so so we get these companies that used to be textbook companies that are now basically saying, we have a rich trove of data on student behavior. And don't you want to come work with us to figure out ways to create dashboards with insights on your school population that will help you serve them better? And all right. of a sudden you're building these incredible dashboards because like you said, we build it and they will come. We just have been collecting this stuff because we think it might be a value. And now these companies are pivoting and saying, oh, we're not an algebra app. Uh, we're not just an AI powered algebra gamified app. We're a data platform with deep insights. And we can not only tell you what your kids know, but we can predict what they're going to do in the future. If they're going to make it to college, if they mm-hmm. are having trouble at home, uh, et cetera. And it's in all sorts of domains, mental health, physical health. It's not really stuff that you probably want anybody to do, much less maybe underfunded local government entities working with very large privately funded corporations. Right. And and, and as you mentioned, the, there are mistakes made with this collected data. Like I, you've, you've probably in the audience heard, had experiences where you were given a drug for some reason, or there were there's some medical condition you had that was maybe tangential to something that's common and to another ailment, and all of a sudden you're flooded with, you know, advertisements or or things for like for instance, I'm not diabetic, but I at one point I was on a drug that often diabetics are on, and then I'm getting calls from image, you know other insurance people and saying you know hey it looks like you're diabetic would you like this, and and so when you take some of these tools that we use for the kids were judging whether or not the kids were attentive. Are they looking at the camera? Are they not, are they not paying attention? And then some of them, you know, some people, uh, some kids who have ADHD or things might have trouble with that. So they get flagged or are they happy? Like I saw some of these tools that were trying to judge whether your kid might be depressed and that stuff gets logged somewhere. Right. And then that gets abused. To say nothing of the fact that different cultures and nationalities express those. Right emotions differently on their faces. The facial recognition doesn't work as well. We already know it doesn't work as well on those that have darker complexions, brown and black communities, right? It doesn't literally those tools, those proctoring tools or those engagement tools don't work. They were probably trained on Caucasian Americans. The the training set was probably very limited, so it doesn't capture some of these other things. That was one of the reasons why a lot of them are so off. Well, you know, interestingly, so most of this tech is being developed really, frankly, out of Silicon Valley or funded out of Silicon Valley. You know, kids today, schools are actually majority minority. Hmm. This is, you know, the country itself is on this big demographic shift. And I think some of the larger political dialogue and conflict that we're having is because the makeup of the country is changing. Right. Right. Many more, you know, sort of minorities as as a population of the whole. We're going to get to a point in the U.S. when it is majority minority. Schools are already there. Right. I mean, if you think about this demographic wave, it starts with young people, which means it starts with schools. People have assumptions about what schools look like and kids look like. 
the people building these tools are profoundly out of touch with that. So it's 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 a huge issue. I mean, I'm 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 encouraged and I and I stand up and I support the work of folks who are doing work in in, in feels like algorithmic justice and trying to assess and evaluate these algorithms and and shed some light on them. Folks like the markup that are doing data-based research on how these mm-hmm. systems actually work. Mm-hmm. It's vital, vital, vital. And uh, you know, we need much more of it. And I would love nothing more for folks in that field to turn their attention to that school sector. Cause I think what they will find will open their eyes and it could open up a lot of people's uh, eyes and minds. As we close up, what, what can people do? What can the students do? What can parents do if they're concerned about these things? I, I have, they've, been any successful cases where parents or students have fought back against some of these invasive technologies? Just from a technical standpoint, can you remove these things? As you're saying, some of these some of these software kits are almost almost root kit type things are really hard to successfully remove from your your computers and smartphones. So, what can parents and, and students do to push back against some of these privacy invasive tools and techniques? Yeah. So, I, I mean. I... I don't want to be nihilistic about this, right? So I think as an individual, probably the best thing you can do if you are able to do so is to really segregate your personal life from your school Hmm. life and your school communications, right? Don't do schoolwork on your home devices. Do it on your school devices. Don't use the same usernames and passwords. Please, please don't use the same usernames and passwords as your school accounts, Mm -hmm. as your home and personal ones. Uh, use a password manager, I mean, all of that good two-factor authentication, all that good advice, push schools to put in place that those sorts of protections. I think, practically speaking, though, what can individuals do to get schools to do a better job? I honestly think what they can do is speak up to their principals, to superintendents, to school boards. School boards mm-hmm. are the body that is accountable mm-hmm. to the public, and they hire the superintendent, and they're in charge of the policies of the district ask questions of school board members. So what is what are the security and privacy practices of these applications we're using? Have you thought about the unintended application of these automated license plate readers in the parking lot of the facial recognition on the security cameras that you've put in, right? I, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. I think it's unethical. And people can go back and say, well, it's compliant with the law and you can come back and say, but it's unethical. Think about this. Here's why. And there have been examples of where people have successfully pushed back. The instance of facial recognition on uh, cameras up in Lockport, New York, the school district up there was deploying facial recognition on security cameras. Parents rose up there and have successfully pushed that implementation back. And in fact, pushed a moratorium across the whole state of New York Mm. as a result on that sort of technology, uh, at least for the time being. There has been a recent court case that suggested that online test proctoring software may not be allowed to involuntarily scan, you know, students' rooms as a condition of sort of taking the test in schools, right? So it is important to speak up if you think there is some injustice here. And, you know, while you may get some pushback about whether things are legal or not, it's it's just really important in today's context to understand that our laws are not in any way caught up with what the situations are. And we should not confuse what is legal with what is right. 
mm-hmm. and what is moral and just. And I think that's that's the argument to make. And I think it's a very compelling argument, particularly for an institution like public education, which is supposed to be have these very high, high, what highfalutin values and mission, right, to 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 serve society. And I think they should be held to a higher bar. Absolutely. So I, I would say advocacy is is a big thing that folks, you know, folks can do. And then, you know, for folks who work in the IT domain, push your districts into organizations like K-12-6, like ours, right? You know, push them in, you know, p- just get them not working alone. Get them working with others to learn about best practices and, you know, implement some basic controls. I, I think, you know, one of the challenges that we do see is a little bit of solutionism, you know, we just need a better antivirus. We we just get this mm. security tool and we'll solve all our problems. And, you know, tooling is important, but at the end of the day, people, culture, you know, practices are way, way, way more important for schools right now than getting a, a fancy SIM or, a you know, some other fancy tool in a district that frankly isn't going to get implemented well. And they're not going to be able to handle all the alerts, et, et cetera, et cetera. All right. The last question before we go, what, what other resources can you recommend? Obviously your, your own, we'll talk, uh, talk to that one, of course, but what are the recommendations might you have for administrators or te- uh, teachers or system or school system IT folks that are concerned about these issues and, and want to get more educated and want to get more plugged in. And then uh, and, and a parallel thing, what about for parents and students? Are there any resources you can recommend for them? Yeah, it's tough. There's this weird uh, idiosyncratic thing that's happened in the K-12 sector, which is that we've been laser focused on issues of student data privacy. And there are a tremendous amount of resources that are available to help technical and non-technical leaders learn about issues of student data privacy and make good choices Mm. around student data privacy. Now, many of those are about policies and they've been built by industry, right? So there are pros and cons to, to some of those resources. There are very few that take the wider lens of cybersecurity writ large, Hmm. confidentiality, integrity, right? Availability. And I think you need to take that larger lens. I think the folks, uh, the U.S. Department of Education has something called the Privacy Technical Assistance Center or PTAC. It is a reliable place to get information about uh, federal privacy law, but they do offer many good resources about security as well. And they're offering more and more every day. I think also on the federal side, actually the Federal Cybersecurity Agency, CISA, has started as well to offer more K-12 specific resources. They're Hmm. actually holding uh, a national virtual conference shortly, back to school Hmm. conference, to help school districts specifically that will cover everything from physical risk to cybersecurity risk. Okay. Congress actually passed something called the K-12 Cybersecurity Act, pardon me, last fall that charges CISA with doing a study and making some K-12 specific hmm. recommendations. And we expect those to be coming out, you know, frankly, any day now. So okay. I'm looking forward to seeing those. You know, I think otherwise, certainly, uh, you know, we at K-12-6, k126.org have uh, a lot of resources that are available to folks. We're happy to point people to them. You know, for individual parents, teachers, community members, particularly those that are not IT minded. Uh, and this is going to maybe sound a little bit odd because if they don't know about your work, Carrie, <laughs> it's going to be odd to tell them that they should know about your work. But I have 
personally recommended, you know, your resources to family members, to others who are quote unquote normals who are not deep in these issues. And they can help them protect their sort of personal lives and sort of well-being. I mean, on the uh, sort of education front, there are other organizations like Common Sense Media uh, that have done uh, a, a good job yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on this as well. But again, uh, some of these are a little bit more privacy focused. Some of these are a little bit more industry friendly as opposed to, you know, sort of consumer or user focused mm-hmm. uh, in their work. So it's it's tough. It's an emerging field. I wish we had more resources to offer. Well, that's been f- some great information. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Doug. This is something that I don't think gets enough attention. So I'm really glad to have you here to talk about it. My pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again to Doug for coming on the show. That was such an important topic. He and I actually had a little bonus content as usual. I've got a, for the private patron podcast, we asked him a few more questions and we got pretty deeply philosophical uh, on privacy for kids and some of the issues around that today. And he talked about his origin story, which had one particularly very interesting story. So patrons, you'll be getting that on Thursdays as usual. But again, if you are in any way associated with K through 12 school systems, if you're a teacher, administrator, uh, or maybe you're on the school board, there's a lot of really great resources that he sent me that I included in today's show notes. I highly encourage you to check those out. Again, you're not in this alone that you need to take advantage of these resources where they are available. As, as Doug was saying that, you know, we can't possibly expect each and every one of these school systems, let alone schools to have on staff cybersecurity experts. So uh, you need to lean on others that are out there trying to help you do this. And his group is one of them. I also wanted to mention he he talked about not using the same usernames and passwords for your account. And we've talked often about not reusing passwords. That's a, a security thing. If you use the same password on site A as you do on site B, and then site A is compromised, you know, site A may tell you, hey, you know, we just had a breach, go change your password, or they may force you to change your password. But if you also use that exact same password on site B and maybe site C and site D, then the bad guys know that. They know that people like to reuse passwords. So if they were able to figure out your password in one place, they will take that same password and try to use it elsewhere. But crucially, they will probably assume that your username is probably your email address and you probably reused that as well on other sites. But you don't have to. We don't talk about this as much, but you should, whenever possible, use a different username or in other words, a different email address on every site, if possible, and you might think, well, how do I do that? I don't have that many email addresses. Well, that's when aliasing comes in. You could actually use services like DuckDuckGo has this, FastMail has this, you know, Firefox has this. There are several now free email aliasing services. Uh, Apple has this, where you can create kind of these on-the-fly dummy throwaway email addresses that behind the scenes will forward to your one real email account. And in fact, it will even let you reply to emails you get to these dummy addresses without exposing your real address. That's a great way to hide yourself and to make it that much harder for bad guys to reuse your credentials. Not only if they figure out your password, they also need to know your username. So I just wanted to call that out and draw attention to that. All right. Well, that will do it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. Subscribe if you haven't. we got a lot of great shows coming up. You don't want to miss any of them. I've got another interview coming up with one of the top security folks at the Nord group, the people who make NordVPN. I've got several others in the works uh, that will be coming up soon, including, of course, the big 300th episode where I'll be talking with Bruce Schneier. He and I have a fun topic to discuss there. 
And thank you so much for those listeners who are sending me their questions, uh, their dear Carrie questions. Uh, I will be once a month picking a name out of the hat of the people who have submitted questions and sending them a free copy of my book. I probably won't announce them on the air because I'm, you know, I'm going to do it every month or so, but I mean, know that I am doing that. And if you want to send me your questions and have me perhaps read them on the air and, and answer those questions here on the show, send me an email to dearcarry at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. If you want the full details on that, you can go to a nifty short link, fdsd.me slash QNA. That link is in the show notes, of course. That will also explain how you can actually send me a sound clip if you actually want to hear your voice asking the question over the airwaves. Uh, you can do that too if you want. So some of your questions, uh, for all of those people who send me questions, I will put you in a drawing to win a free copy of my book. I have just placed the order for version 2.0 of the Super Cool Dragon Challenge coins. I cannot wait to have those in my hot little hands. And I will be giving some of those away uh, with a promotion coming up for the 300th episode. My plan is to announce that promotion for new patrons and for just you know people who want to enter a contest a raffle to get, you know, for me to give away some fun stuff. I will be announcing that on that 300th episode. It'll probably run for a month or so. So maybe I'll announce the winner shortly after new year or something like that. Uh, I'm still working the details, but stay tuned that it's coming up. I'm going to give away some great stuff. 300 episodes, man. I can't, I can't believe uh, I've been doing this every week for 300 weeks, but I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, uh, post on social media. I would very much appreciate it. The more people we can reach with this kind of information, the better off we will all be. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week. Take care out there, stay safe, and until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>